Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Thursday, December 15th. So you've probably been seeing these headline news reports and videos from El Paso, Texas, showing a steady stream of migrants crossing the border. And you've probably been hearing stats like Border Patrol agents are stopping record numbers of unauthorized border crossers, thousands every day at this point. And this is on top of the surge everybody talked about all summer. Remember that? With all that busing of asylum seekers from Venezuela to New York by the governor of Texas and the mayor of El Paso, and even flying some to Martha's Vineyard by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, right? Some migrants in case you missed this, recently filed a lawsuit against DeSantis, alleging they were fraudulently lured onto those planes with false promises of expedited work visas and that Boston would be their destination. New York City is now estimating 30,000 such migrants have been bused this year, so many without a place to stay that it's overwhelming the city's shelter system. By the way, how quickly those stories and the busing by the governor's seem to have stopped after Election Day passed, and they, DeSantis and Texas Governor Abbott, were reelected last month. But now there is apparently another surge at the southern border, tied in part to a coming policy change that will likely make it harder to cross and stay very soon. But here's a little big-picture context, courtesy of the Washington Post editorial board, which wrote in September, and some of this may surprise you, it says Border Patrol agents are stopping unauthorized migrants coming from Mexico at record levels. Little wonder more than half of Americans now say an invasion is underway at the southern border, according to a recent NPR Ipsos poll, writes the Post. But then they write this, addressing the perception that the U.S. is being overrun. It says, at the same time, Net immigration to the United States has been on a downward slope for five years. Migrants added just 247,000 people to the U.S. population in the year that ended in July 2021, the smallest increase in three decades and an amount equal to less than one-tenth of one percent of the country's population. And it says the Trump administration having launched an assault on legal as well as illegal immigration, drove down the number of entries through red tape even before COVID-19's arrival. And the Post editorial board concludes that our problem is actually too little immigration, not too much. It says without a more forward-looking immigration policy, one more closely aligned with labor force demands in an economy starved for workers, the nation's long-term economic growth prospects will be stunted. So that's one take, Washington Post editorial board, and some context we haven't been hearing much of. And yet there is a border crisis at the same time. An article in the Texas Tribune yesterday was headlined, In El Paso, Migrants Are Sleeping on the Streets After Thousands Crossed the Border Last Weekend. 
So with us now from El Paso is the journalist who reported that story, Oriel Garcia, immigration reporter for the Texas Tribune based in El Paso, and also with us on the national policy aspects of this, Maria Sachetti, immigration reporter for the Washington Post. Maria and Oriel, we really appreciate your time today as you have so much to cover with this story right now. Welcome to WNYC. Thank you. Thanks. Oriel, your headline in El Paso, migrants are sleeping on the streets after thousands crossed the border last weekend. Is something new and different happening in El Paso now from the surge we all talked about in the summer? Yes and no. Uh, I think one of the differences is that um, unlike the uh, the summer or even just September, when we had there was an increase of migrants coming into El Paso, was that this time it, we're talking about mostly um, people from Nicaragua coming into El Paso. In the summer, we were hearing about all these people fleeing the left-wing dictatorship and economic collapse in Venezuela. Now, according to your story, more than a 1,000 people in just a four-hour period on Sunday crossed into El Paso or other points along about a 250-mile stretch of border there. Many, you write, from Nicaragua, Honduras, Guatemala, and the Dominican Republic. So how much have the source countries changed that dramatically in recent weeks, and why? Uh, well, it, it's been uh, uh, different different reasons why people are leaving, um, but uh, particularly with Nicaragua, um, you know, the, the U.S. has put sanctions on them and has described their government there as authoritative. So there's been a lot of uh, political and social turmoil in Nicaragua and, and in the other countries. I mean, some other reasons why migrants have been telling me why they're coming is because a lack of jobs and they don't necessarily use the technical terms. But as an example, some of the migrants I've talked to is, you know, their farming jobs have ended or uh, natural disasters have um, have destroyed their homes. And, you know, when you add that all that up, you know, when you have political turmoil and the effects of climate change, it's added, uh, um, it's added a crisis to their home countries, forcing them to seek jobs elsewhere outside of their home countries. Can you remind everyone in a little more detail what Title 42 is and why it's a factor now in the current surge? So Title 42 is actually the public health code, and, and it's become shorthand for the policy that uh, authorized the Trump administration to basically shut down the, the borders uh, to, to asylum seekers. Um, our, our laws say, you know, that uh, if someone sets foot on U.S. soil, they should be allowed to seek asylum. We're not in the United States and, and other countries, you know, have, have promised um, not to send people to countries where they could be killed or persecuted. And uh, that's something that was shaped after World War II when uh, victims of the Holocaust were turned away and, and sent to their deaths um, and, and codified you know, in the eight, 1980 Refugee Act. So these are longstanding principles in the United States. And, and the Trump administration you know, uh, during the pandemic uh, effectively shut that down. Uh, now, uh, Biden has made, you know, has kept Title 42. Um, so, and, uh, but, uh, and, but he has also continued to expel migrants under it because um, it made border processing so, so easy. And there was, you know, concerns about the spread of COVID. Uh, but, you know, the, the fact is that the Trump administration downplayed COVID away from the border, even as it killed 
uh, thousands and thousands of people. And uh, there, you know, federal judges have found no evidence, uh, very little evidence uh, that uh, Title 42 ever helped prevent the spread of COVID. Uh, Advocates have said it was a pretext for shutting the border. So, Uriel, what is your uh, perception as a reporter there in El Paso about how much the impending expiration of Title 42, if that in fact comes about, is affecting the actual flow of people. I mean, are people hearing, oh, Title 42, it's going to the Supreme Court, you know, in Nicaragua and Honduras. I mean, is this affecting what we're seeing in terms of the current surge? It could. Uh, You know, to add to what um, Maria was saying is we have to keep in mind that Title 42 is is not an immigration law. It's a it's a health law being used as an immigration law. And it's only been in place for nearly three years. Uh, Our immigration law, there were already immigration laws in the book before Title 42 that handled these type of uh, increases in migration. And so what we could expect about uh, after Title 42 expires as scheduled right now next week is we could see a a large number of immigrants crossing. And part of the reason for that, as advocates and experts have told me, is because Title 42 created a backlog. As Maria said, uh, Title 42 doesn't deport people. It expels people. And expelling people doesn't carry any consequences, meaning, let's say, I cross the Rio Grande one day and Border Patrol tells me, okay, you have to go back to Mexico. That's it. I come back the next day and I keep continue doing that until until as much as I can. There's no consequences. And with once Title 42 ends, um, Border Patrol uh, exclusively is going back to uh, Title 8, which is an actual immigration law. And basically what that happens is I cross the Rio Grande post Title 42. And what happens, I get arrested. I may or may not get prosecuted and get deported and being deported could uh, harm any potential chances of any immigration benefits I could have earned uh, in the future. Uriel, could you describe to listeners elsewhere in the country what El Paso is like generally? Like how many, And on the map, for people who don't know, uh, if you go way west in Texas, you get to El Paso at a point that's really below sort of uh, central New Mexico and at the Mexican border. So it's a, it's a place where Texas, New Mexico, and Mexico all come together at the Rio Grande. And describe what it's like generally. Like how many permanent residents are there? What's the economy based on? And how much does unauthorized immigration in large numbers define what the city is about or the city government and what its job is day to day? Yeah, I mean, one of the jobs, one of the biggest employers in town is law enforcement. Uh, there's a lot of law enforcement here. We're talking about every from local police, sheriff's office, uh, state police. Uh, there's a lot of border patrol agents, ICE agents. And of course, we, there's a military base. Uh, apart from that, uh, it's a pretty busy uh, city, as you mentioned. It's on the border with Mexico and New Mexico, um, and it's also isolated. It's uh, the nearest uh, Texas city is nine hours away. Um, I believe we're closer to Phoenix than we are to um, to the to its own capital. Um, it's generally a quiet city in the sense that um, there's not a lot of crime happening. It's a pretty safe city. And, you know, something that I want listeners to, you know, picture is that even though there is a crisis going on, it's not disrupting the daily, uh, uh, El Paso's daily lives. People get up, go to work, uh, pick up their children from school. Generally speaking, the majority of the people 
are not affected by what's going on at the bridge right now. Um, that's not to say that there isn't a crisis there. Of course, as I reported, there are migrants sleeping on the streets. Um, Border Patrol is really busy. They're, they're having to allocate resources from one, one of the port of entries to another. Um, but in a way, it's kind of a con contained crisis, if you will. Um, and other than that, I mean, uh, it's like I said, people are still going about their lives. Do you watch the national media? Do you watch the networks? Do you think this is being overreported as a crisis in El Paso? It's an issue that needs to be reported, uh, no doubt about that. Um, but I think uh, I think what what uh, viewers and listeners and sometimes readers may miss is that you know they may not be getting the whole context as to how people live here. Uh, it's a middle class city. It's it's like I said, it's a pretty things are, are normal right now for, for the majority of the city. I, I think that what, what may be missing is that context is that people, reporters, national reporters come down here and, you know, it's, it's an important issue to cover, but it's not, it's not the daily lives of the rest of El Paso residents. Here's a clip of the mayor of El Paso, Oscar Leeser on ABC in September, after it was reported that he was arranging buses for many new arrivals to go to New York and elsewhere. The people are not coming to El Paso, they're coming to America. And, and that's something that's really important. And we look at them and we talk to them and we say, where do you want to go, what's your destination? And then we will take them and help them get to their destination. The big difference that's happened today that, that really was not uh, normally was that about 95% of everyone coming had a sponsor. A sponsor is someone where it's a family member or a friend where they've arranged and they have transportation to go to their uh, destination. As we see now from Venezuela, they don't have sponsors. So we have about 50% of the people today that do not have a sponsor. They don't have money. So we're helping and working to get them to where they want to go. So that's been really important that we don't send anyone where they don't want to go. We make sure we help them. And we put human beings and, you know, and we put them on buses with food and make sure they get to their destination with, and make sure that we always continue to treat people like human beings. The mayor of El Paso on ABC in September. Uriel, let me stay with you on this for a minute. Um, how much does his statement reflect the reality there on, on both of the major points that he was making? One, that, you know, people are coming to America, uh, not to El Paso per se. So it becomes uh, El Paso's uh, burden to the extent that they see it as a burden. But he's trying to treat human beings as you, human beings and that his busing to New York and elsewhere has been different than Governor Abbott's, that the mayor is doing it in consultation with Mayor Adams in New York and others in other cities, not just sending them unannounced to land on your doorstep to make a political point. Would that be accurate? Uh, to an extent, yes. I mean, it, it is a little bit different. Um, and I, I think the big difference is the rhetoric around the programs. Um, as the mayor said, you know, they're, they're treating them like humans. Um, there's no indication that migrants who are taking buses on the Abbott program are being necessarily mistreated. I think it's the rhetoric and, and the intention of why the governor is doing that as opposed to why the city of El Paso is doing it. Um, you know, I, 
I know that uh, in some cases, uh, people have said that El it's a bit of a, a hypocrisy for El Paso to be doing the same when so many advocates have been saying that it's uh, inhumane what Abbott is doing. Um, when I've talked to uh, people who run shelters and the local people here, the issue isn't necessarily who's doing it and why they're doing it. The point is that what they're seeing is people in need of help and they're trying to get from point A to point B. And as Americans, we have to question ourselves is, is that what, is that what we want to do? Do we want to help migrants, people in need, get from point A to point B? And uh, regardless of politics, what advocates have told or shelter workers have told me is, you know, that's something that we really need to question ourselves about. This isn't a burden. It's a social issue that needs to be taken care of. And ignoring it is not going to make anything better. Here's President Biden from his State of the Union address back in March on what he said at that time that he's been doing already on immigration. At our border... We've installed new technology like cutting-edge scanners to better detect drug smuggling. We've set up joint patrols with Mexico and Guatemala to catch more human traffickers. We're putting in place dedicated immigration judges in a significant larger number so families fleeing persecution and violence can have their cases heard faster and those who don't legitimately hear can be sent back. We're screening. We're securing commitments and supporting partners in South and Central America to host more refugees and secure their own borders. We can do all this while keeping lit the torch of liberty that has led the generation of immigrants to this land, my forebears and many of yours. President Biden there from the State of the Union address in March, even before the surge of Venezuelans and all that political busing in the summer and the surge taking place now, uh, so let's look at some of those things that he mentioned specifically. But Maria, considering that the surge is taking place at what's being called record levels of thousands of people per day, doesn't sound like a lot of that is working. Well, and, and, and you're, you're seeing, you know, um, the migration kind of diversify. You know, you're seeing last in October, um, it was, uh, I think, uh, CBP reported that People from Mexico, Venezuela, I mean, I was sorry, people from Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua outnumbered the more traditional arrivals from countries like Mexico and the Northern Triangle and Central America. So, you know, immigration, you know, is, is so driven by need, but also technology. And, and, and that's part of the reason you're, show, you're seeing, you know, so many nationalities show up at specific points on the border at once. You know, they're sharing information and, and migration can change really quickly with policies and, and new information. One of um, the Trump policies that President Biden uh, reversed, I think, was the um, remain in Mexico policy, where you have to apply from there, but also a related one that required um, that nobody be admitted, and tell me if I'm describing this incorrectly, that nobody be admitted to the United States if they passed through other countries on their way here, that they have to have sought asylum there first uh, under the premise that if you're really just seeking asylum to leave your country because it's not safe for you there, um, then the first country you come to, that's where you should be trying to stay. Otherwise, you're just trying to get to the United States for other reasons, right? That's the argument there. It, it, was that policy effective 
from Trump's point of view? And did Biden undo it? Remain in Mexico uh, required migrants to wait uh, for their asylum uh, hearings from Mexico. Um, so uh, advocates said that it endangered a lot of migrants uh, waiting in, in Mexico, uh, violated immigration and violated asylum laws. Um, uh, but what it did do, and this is something the Biden administration wants to see happen, you know, wants more of, is create a process where people would come to a port of entry and and enter the United States as opposed to crossing, you know, in remote areas and waiting for the border patrol to pick you up, pick them up. I mean, if if even if that happened now, you know, you would see um, more and more uh, migrants and and children in danger. You know, one thing I think that is uh, really overlooked is how many of the migrants are children. And that is a major change from a couple of decades ago when most migrants were single men. And it's much more like what we have been seeing in Europe and, and other places with migrants mm -hmm. fleeing. Um, so that, that, and then that is a really important change. You know, those apprehensions that CBP talk about, um, they include large numbers of teenagers and children. Maria Sacchetti, immigration reporter for the Washington Post, and Uriel Garcia, immigration reporter for the Texas Tribune based in El Paso. Thank you both so much for some time today. Uh, as I said at the beginning, I know the story is developing quickly around both of you on your beats, and you gave us a lot of time. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.